0: Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today is a policy episode. We are talking <clears throat> with Dr. Vivek Subaya at the University of Texas, MD Anderson, about regulatory approval, tissue agnostic therapies, and the synthetic control arms that are derived from real-world data. This is really important because what's going on right now is more utilization of real world data to get some regulatory approvals. And I think we all know that real world data is not perfect. There are a lot of shortcomings, but despite that, this is the real world that we live in and we need to embrace it and we need to try to understand how can we actually leverage the information that we get from the real world to help the patients that we have. And this is probably very fitting in situations where we are looking at biomarker-driven type of diseases because these diseases could be rare. And uh, I think sometimes it could be very difficult to conduct prospective randomized controlled trials to understand the efficacy of a particular compound, yes or no. So I think there are a lot of issues happening in that field. And Dr. Vivek Subaya has been an unbelievable force in conducting clinical research for rare tumors, in conducting research for biomarker type of studies and and has done really amazing work. He and his team have contributed to approving over seven drugs by the FDA. All of these drugs are helping patients and their families. So it is really such a pleasure and an honor to have Dr. Vivek Subaya with me today on Healthcare Unfiltered. He has visited with us last year in 2021, and again, he is coming back a year later, which is good, which means I did not piss him off yet, because of course I'm going to piss him off. And it means he really supports Healthcare Unfiltered, and I'm really very grateful for him, but also super proud of the productivity that he has done and uh, really check out his work, follow him on Twitter, and just see the amazing progress that he has contributed to the field of medical oncology. Uh, I can say over the past five years, uh, I have seen so much productivity that uh, is just uh, something all of us should be proud of. And it's really a testament of commitment to clinical research and to precision oncology. Before I air the episode I taped with Dr. Vivek Subaya on Healthcare Unfiltered, uh, I would love for you to find my podcast on all podcast outlets to subscribe to it, rate it and write a brief review. If you are able to also watch my episodes on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered and check out my website, shadinabhan.com. Follow me on Twitter and always send your recommendations and ideas. And if you are a loyal listener and interested and you wanna sport the best t-shirt in the business, the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt, send me a direct message, and demand the t-shirt that you want. Without further ado, the myth, the legend, the clinician, the researcher, Dr. Vivek Subaya on Healthcare Unfiltered. Well, let's start by the usual stuff uh you know a little bit of introduction about you and so on where you came from and and how did you end up at md anderson
1: oh thank you so much shadi for having me back uh in this podcast it's always you know again i started listening to this podcast when i'm driving i think this is uh you know i go you know uh, although i go to the youtube videos i just i started you know listening to these podcasts so, you know, some of them are phenomenal. I think thank especially, you. you know, again, we we tend to work in academia and we tend to work in silos, think in silos. Uh, I think the healthcare unfiltered has opened up silos. Uh, you know, social media, one way is opening up silos. And podcasts, uh, you know, give us more, you know, in terms of their the, the real, uh, you know, thought process. So I think, thank you for, you know, doing this. No, I appreciate you. Very thank kind. Doing this. And then you. people need to know uh, the right information as well. Right? You know, People who are listening to, you know, especially uh, people who are not involved in clinical trials, involved in drug development on the lay audience, they need to know information from different points of view.
0: I Thanks appreciate for your support. No, appreciate. So just to
1: give a brief introduction of me, I'm Vivek Subayoff, I'm currently a medical oncologist in the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And I did my training, medical school in India, I moved here uh, and did my residency in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I did a com- combined medicine and pediatric residency there. Uh, I never wanted to be an oncologist, but you know things uh, so happened that I loved doing uh, clinical research and I wanted to do clinical trials. That's why I started a career in, in a place that trains uh, one for clinical trials. I did a combined uh, Hemonc pediatric and adult hemalk fellowship at MD Anderson. And, 2012, I started as a faculty in uh, MD Anderson in the early phase drug development program, and I'm currently the center medical director of the early phase uh, trials program. And just before the pandemic, I took on another role as executive director of medical oncology research in the MD Anderson Cancer Network. So, in my brief, um, you know, time here at MD Anderson, it's been, uh, you know, rewarding to, uh, you know, lead several. Uh, practice-changing clinical trials, mainly uh, precision oncology clinical trials to FDA approval, you know, right, from rare diseases like anaplastic thyroid cancer, BRAF, uh, recently the two selective rate inhibitors, and uh, to recently the uh, tissue agnostic uh, BRAF inhibitor drug development, FGFR, lorobinectidine, and among others, among several others.
0: Well, it's been... um... It's been wonderful truly watching your productivity and um, and to me I honestly don't judge productivity by the number of papers because Absolutely. frankly you could write 200 review papers with mm-hmm. the nice cv I uh, I judge productivity into the impact of what you are actually doing on clinical care and advancing research
1: Absolutely
0: and there's no question you have had amazing amazing impact and 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 uh, I am glad that you went into oncology. I think patients are served very well by doing that. So there's so much we could talk about. The last, when I had you on the show, I think it's been close to a year. I was looking when you were on, it was really last spring of 2021. So it's been a while. Um, It seems like
1: a decade because of pandemic, the time is in a warp speed.
0: (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah. but uh, we talked about precision oncology in general. I yes. think we were just very in general. What I want to do differently today, um, I want to talk a little bit about precision oncology, but then I want to really segue into when you design clinical trials like the ones that you were involved in that led to the approval, I want to, I wanted to take listeners through the process that happens at, you're an investigator, there's a drug maker and a sponsor. There's the FDA, the regulatory process. I mean, how does this actually go into until you go to the, in front of the FDA and the FDA grants this, the type of studies, because you're, I mean, the trials that uh, that you're doing are they're always small cohorts. They're not really, you know, and I think that's really where the field is going. So let's start by um, explaining in your own words, How do you define precision oncology today?
1: Again, uh, precision oncology is delivering uh, the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. So let's go back, say, two decades ago. In the 1990s, they said, you know, the human genome can never be sequenced. And early 2002, uh, it took almost $300 billion and a decade to sequence the first human genome. We are learning. So, right now, Uh, you know, today, as you know, and others know, we can sequence, uh, you know, do a whole exome, a whole genome for $5,000 in the US. And if you go to China or India, you can get it sequenced for less than $100. So again, clinical next gen sequencing has been rapidly evolving in the last two decades. And at the same time, there has been an explosion in terms of drug development, right? The immunotherapies and targeted therapy. So the clinical next gen sequencing helps us identify targets across multiple cancers. And, you know, then at the same time, in the last two two decades, there have been a revolution in the drug development paradigm, right? We have immunotherapy. We have a lot of targeted therapy. Let's take, for instance, the case of lung cancer, which has become the poster child for precision oncology. So a decade ago, when patients were diagnosed with lung cancer, it's either non-small cell lung cancer or small cell lung cancer. Non-small cell lung cancer get the same chemotherapy and we get the same outcomes. With you know comprehensive genomic profiling, we've identified today, at least we have 10 genomically defined subsets of lung cancer that can be benefited from these precision medicines. So again, we are here and lung cancer has become 1% you know, disease. Like for instance, the RET inhibitor studies that I've led, it's one to 2% of non-smart cell lung cancer. And we have an effective drugs to go after these diseases. So now, a decade later, we are sitting with the success of these therapies. At the same time, you know, there is a lot more work to do for 80 to 90% of patients who do not benefit from these precision therapies.
0: So, but but do you envision, do you envision that histology and origin of tumor are going to matter in five years? I mean, are are we getting, because we're getting so many of these new drugs that are being approved tissue agnostic based on the actual driver mutation or whatever the uh, biomarker is. Is that where we're heading? I mean, is that what's gonna happen?
1: no i don't think so because the if you think about the usfda approval process the usfda has approved drugs to treat patients with tumor types based on single anatomic sites such as kidney cancer melanoma rather than biomarker alone you know this standard approach is based on a number of factors including heterogeneity of drug effects in different biomarker positive subtypes additionally you know uh, drug development for s- some drugs were primarily directed towards a specific uh, you know genomic type in a specific tumor type So uh, the thing is that uh, most genomic alterations are shared across multiple cancer types. So there will be, you know, genomically, you know, you know, diverse, uh, you know, targets like tissue agnostic target drug development, but there will definitely continue to be, 90% of drug development is going to be histology specific.
0: Got it. So, so, So there will be histology. The majority will be histology specific in Europe, even as we move forward.
1: Absolutely, majority will be histology specific because that's how clinical trials are designed. That's how uh, you know institutions are set up. That's how you know trials are designed. So histology agnostic uh, drug development uh, is interesting, right? So the first ever drug to you know receive a histology agnostic drug approval was pembrolizumab, an immunotherapy for, you know, microsite satellite unstable cancers across tumor types. Uh, and interestingly, this was a first drug approval. And following that, we had uh, n fusions that were seen across tumor types. And larotrectinib was the first uh, FDA approved targeted therapy towards uh, as a histology uh, agnostic manner. And n followed suit. And then pembrolizumab again was approved for a high tumor mutation burden high. And recently we had the BRAF you know, drug approval. So again, these drug approvals in a histology agnostic way you know seem to be minority. And histology specific uh, drug development will still continue as a major clinical trial paradigm.
0: All right, so that's helpful. I actually expected the opposite answer. So that's why I asked the question. Let's go through the regulatory process. Let's try to understand, What you have worked on over the past several years is you brought in so many drugs through the FDA process, through the FDA and regulatory process. Take us through one example. How does it start literally from A to Z? Somebody calls you or you call the company and say it's investigator initiated. How does it go and how do you agree on finding the actual study? Do you discuss it with the FDA? Just take us through you know, regulatory process for your type of studies for dummies?
1: Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. So again, uh, everyone is smart. I wouldn't call dummies. I think, we, we you know, when we think we... For
0: me, we, for me, for we, me. You me, know. just need, need me,
1: me, <laughs> me. We are dummies because I, I, I feel I'm a dummy because I'm not able to get every drug approved <laughs> or every clinical trial successful yeah. that, I, that, that I do. I need, I am still learning. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, for, 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 for the lay listeners, you know there are multiple ways clinical trials can be done, right? Clinical trials itself are divided into phase one studies, phase two studies, and phase three studies, right? And if you see there is so much uh, attrition when we move from a phase a drug from phase one to phase three. So what do they do? right? So all academic institutions or scientific centers and labs test, uh, you know, do something called drug screening. They test these new drugs in petri dishes, in, in something called what we call as cancer cell lines. So again, tens and thousands of drugs are being tested like that every day in so many labs. And among those, you know, there is a, there are a few drugs that show some activity in these petri dishes with cancer cell lines. They think it is promising and then they take it to uh, you know, mouse models, like preclinical studies, that's what we call as preclinical studies. So the preclinical studies, uh, most of the drugs, if there's 10,000 molecules, make it to preclinical studies, you know, most of them will be dead by then. So 100 molecules make it beyond the most model studies. Then they move into something called large animal studies, uh, which we use dog and, and uh, or monkey models. So when they move to, you know, uh, large animal studies and monkey models, if the drug is toxic, then the drug is shelved. And if they pass through all these phases, they make it to something what we call as first in human studies, right? Phase one studies are first in human studies. So when first in human studies, what is the purpose of first in human study to say, check the safety and toxicity of these drugs? You know, we don't know the human dose of these drugs. So what essentially, you know, we do is let's take, for instance, a non-oncology drug, say Tylenol, right? For For a patient to be uh, uh, alleviated from headache, if you need 500 milligrams, how did we get to the 500 milligrams of the drug? We did not know that. So they would have tested that in monkeys, and they would have known that the drug is uh, not toxic uh, below a certain level of the drug. And then based on certain calculations, they come up with the first in human dose. And, you know, glad that people in the 50s and 60s have done all these calculations for us. So we are able to guesstimate and calculate the first in human dose. So what they would start as, say, they would start at 10 milligrams. So the conventional trial phase one design is a three plus three design. They will start at 10 milligrams and they will enroll three patients in that. They will wait for a month. If the patients do well on the 10 milligrams, then they they go up a dose level. They go to 20 milligrams. So this process, I treat the process, goes on until you know the target, you know, and, until the, the patient develops toxicity. So they will measure labs, they will do scans and everything on these patients, and if there are any abnormalities, say liver function abnormalities, what we call it as DLT, or dose limiting toxicity. So they go, say they from they, from ten milligrams they went all the way up to six hundred milligrams, and at six hundred milligrams they saw liver abnormalities, that is a DLT. Then what they do is they go back down and dose more patients in a lower dose level, say 500. So then if that dose is safe, that becomes something what we call as MTD, maximum tolerated dose or recommended phase two dose in this case. So then that is the phase one study. The phase one study ends there and because we know the dose and then The next process is a phase two study. What's a phase two study? So we know the dose of the drug. Now we are checking the efficacy of this drug and also the toxicity of this drug because we are going to be treating more patients at a specific dose level. And beyond phase two studies, if the drug shows efficacy data, so for instance, in oncology cancer drug, if the drug shows that it is active against a particular disease, then phase three trials are done. Uh, using what we call as randomized control study designs, where this drug that we are testing is randomized against uh, placebo or standard of care. Again, this is a traditional pathway of drug development. If the experimental drug shows benefit versus standard of care for that particular disease or versus placebo, you know, if the drug shows benefit, clinical benefit, you know, they do all these statistical designs, And then uh, they go to the FDA and show the data. The FDA looks at the data, the efficacy toxicity data. And and then based on that data, if the drug is beneficial, the drug received what is called as FDA approval. That that means that the company, drug company, has marketing authorization for the drug. So that is the traditional model or drug development paradigm in oncology. Phase one study, phase two study, and phase three studies.
0: So this process... Vivek, before you go into the other process, how long does that traditional thing take uh, just to give listeners an idea in terms of the duration?
1: So the traditional process in oncology takes anywhere from 10 to 15 years. And you know, you see that, right? Phase one, doing preclinical studies, phase one studies, phase two studies, and phase three. The traditional model uh, you know, takes 10 to 15 years in oncology. So this is what was used to being the conventional, you know, phase one, two, three trial. So, you know, this is the basics of, you know, clinical trial drug development in oncology. So, there are several ways of studies where, uh, where you asked how we can do clinical tri- trials, right? So, one is called the investigator-initiated clinical trial. So, investigator-initiated means uh, an academic uh, center PI has an idea uh, that this drug may work in a particular cancer, either alone or in combination with any modality. Or a combination with drugs, so then I need to show some preclinical data, right? I Work with my collaborators or do it in my own lab, uh, that this drug is supposedly active in this in this disease, and then I have to apply to pharmaceutical company because they have the drugs, so and you know they give access to the drugs and they provide funding, you know, some funding to do the investigational trials. So, you know, that is a pharma-funded investigation, investigate-initiated trial. And, you know, it's usually done in a single center or uh, two or three centers. There is another way of doing investigation initiated trials is through NIH. The NIH and NCI has this program called CTEP, So wherein all the pharma companies that have drugs, uh, you know, give access to all the drugs in NIH. And if the concept and the scientific rationale of our study is compelling, has good preclinical and or clinical evidence, we can pitch in something called the letter of intent to NIH. If that is approved, then we can do a clinical protocol with NIH. The good thing about doing a trial with NIH is you can get access to the drug, plus you can combine two drugs from two different companies. So it's always hard as an individual investigator when you want to combine Two drugs from two different companies, because the most of um, you know, the legal language from academic institutions and m- many other companies, you know, is, is quite challenging. So it's easy through the NIH to do that because both the companies have given their drugs to NIH, and if it makes sense, you can access both the drugs through this mechanism. So those are, you know, some of the few mechanisms of investigator-initiated studies, and another, uh, you know, uh, mechanism that we can do studies. Are called through cooperative groups, you know, cooperative groups like Swag, ECOG, You know, they do uh, you know studies as well. You know, th- those are big randomized studies across major academic centers. So in the last 20 to 30 years, what has really come up is what we know call as sponsored studies. Sponsored studies are, you know, pharmaceutical companies, right? Because they make the drugs, they own the drugs, and it is of their interest to develop these drugs so that they can get FDA approval. And they want to make sure that this process is seamless and fast, they do these clinical trials. So, sponsored trials are done by pharma companies, right? So, in in sponsored studies, what happens is they reach out to uh, academic investigators in multiple centers and they form something called the steering committee. And, you know, the steering committee provides the input for the study design to pharma companies. And based on that, the study is designed. Uh, and and then, you know, if it's a phase two study, uh, you know, it's done across multiple centers and the pharma, pharmaceutical company engages several academic centers. And as and when the trial progresses, the data is analyzed. If the data shows that the data is promising, then they analyze the data, they present it in national meetings, they put the data together. And then what happens is, you know, once you move on to phase two or phase three studies, they go to FDA with the data and they ask uh, FDA uh, to approve the drug so that they can start uh, authorization. There are multiple steps involved, and I think FDA approval process can itself be an entire topic for another day.
0: And is it what you're seeing right now is a lot of these tissue agnostic, biomarker-driven studies are more coming as pharma-sponsored trials. They have a target, they have a drug, and they come to investigators and say, we want to get this drug through the regulatory approval and they designed that trial. Is that what's going on? I want to try to take one of your trials. Let's say the last one you just did that just led to the approval of the BRAF plus the MEC, I believe, right? Let's let's go through that. How did this come about and how long did it take until we got the FDA approval?
1: Yeah, BRAF is an interesting target because as you know, uh, BRAF is prevalent in melanoma. 50 to 60% of melanoma, you know, patients with melanoma harbor the BRAF V600 alteration. And we have three com- combination drug approvals in this space. And BRAF as a mutation, BRAF e 600 mutation, is seen across multiple, multiple tumor types. But in the beginning, not many pharma companies wanted to do a tissue agnostic study in BRAF because one, the thought process and trial process was not there a decade ago. Uh, And most of the academic centers were histology specific. And if they want to, uh, you know, have these studies across uh, diseases, they did not have a specific center to house these studies. And another important aspect of not doing a histology agnostic study in BRAF a decade ago was uh, the data from colorectal cancer. Although in melanoma, there was striking, promising responses with all these BRAF inhibitors, in melanoma, the response rate was was negligible. So at the same time, uh, they went back to the lab and found out that EGFR is an innate mechanism of resistance operating in colorectal cancer. And the addition of an EGFR inhibitor, in this case, ataximab or panitimumab, overcame that resistance pathway. So that operating mechanism was only present in colorectal cancer. Because of that, I think companies did not pursue tissue agnostic approval in BRAF V600 cancers. When we designed the study, say in 2012, this was called the ROAR, Rare Oncology Agnostic Research. We picked up nine tumors, nine solid tumors with no FDA approval and unmet need. And we enrolled patients in these nine different baskets. As long as these tumors, rare tumors, harbored the BRAF V600 alteration, they would receive two oral drugs, dabrafinib and Tremetinib. The primary objective was, you know, objective response rate per investigator and it was later confirmed by, uh, you know, central review. And we found, uh, you know, again, when we started doing the study, uh, we, we saw that uh, there was this cancer called anaplastic thyroid cancer. Anaplastic thyroid cancer is one of the most lethal cancers known to us. It's a rare form of thyroid cancer. And the median survival for this anaplastic thyroid cancer is less than six months. And we knew at the time that some of these patients with anaplastic thyroid cancer harbored the BRAF physics and adulteration. alteration. And we, I was probably one of the first few physicians in the world to treat a patient with uh, BRAF inhibitors in anaplastic thyroid cancer. And we saw a promising responses. And because of uh, the promising responses, in that particular cohort, in that roll basket study, and there was no FDA-approved drug uh, in anaplastic thyroid cancer, based on a data set of, say, 23 patients, we were able to get an FDA indication in this rare disease based on the rare oncology agnostic research. Again, that was a win. And then we continued to enroll patients. And recently we showed, we enrolled around 36 patients globally. And we confirmed the definitive benefit of this combination in anaplastic thyroid cancer. So beyond anaplastic thyroid cancer, we had these nine different cohorts that were also accruing. We had patients with cholangiocarcinoma. We had patients with uh, glioblastoma, brain tumor. and Again, another challenging tumor. We also know that glioblastoma, low-grade and high-grade gliomas, harbor this BRAF alteration. So we enrolled patients in that cohort. We also had a cell leukemia cohort. We had other cohorts as well. So as time passed on, we found out that colorectal cancer is an exception. And there are so many different cancers that do respond to BRAF V600 inhibition. In parallel, the NCA Match study was established, and patients were accruing across the nation. And NCA Match, interestingly, also had an arm with BRAF V600E altered patients with the same drugs, dabrafenib and trametinib. And you know, we saw that NCA Match confirmed our raw data, that you know this. Dabrafinib and Trematinib combination uh, showed activity across multiple cancers. So we aggregated both this data together. At the same time, we also aggregated data from pediatric clinical trials. Uh, Again, as a tissue agnostic, we wanted to be age agnostic as well, because BRAF is also seen in pediatric cancer. So based on the aggregate and totality of uh, data showing that colorectal cancer is still an exception with BRAF V600 alteration, we were able to apply for an fda uh, approval uh, you know for, for, for across all solid tumors again to, we need to note that this is not the first approval for this target right so the drug has already been approved in melanoma already been approved in non small cell lung cancer as long as they have a braf v600 alteration and anaplastic thyroid cancer and now across all solid tumors again this provides Uh, a way in which drugs can be authorized, drugs can be approved by the FDA. Again, these who will benefit from this tissue agnostic approval? Rare cancer patients, right? So patients with say, for instance, cholangiocarcinoma or salivary gland cancer or pleomorphic xanthoastrocytoma that we have in those studies. How will a patient sitting, say in Dakota or Kentucky or Alabama who don't have access to a major cancer center access these drugs? Uh, if they have a BRAF alteration. So they need to ask for insurance approval, which may seldom be approved because it's not approved for the indication. And number two is they need to file for a compassionate access. It's paperwork takes a long time. So again, this FDA approval provides access to these rare cancer patients.
0: So Vivek, this is you're talking the accelerated approval pathway. Yes, Yes. So that is a nice segue into the accelerated approval pathway because... So 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 uh, basically the 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 company starts the process with yes. the idea that they are going to go through the accelerated approval pathway.
1: Yes. Correct?
0: Yes. yes. So they they have the biomarker based on have... the
1: early signals of activity, right? So, you know, we right. need to know that the drug works. But begin...
0: but, yeah. but 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 in designing the trial yes. that, that they are going to use for the accelerated approval pathway. Do they have a discussion with the FDA before and they say, okay, this is what we are designing. Yeah, This is our phase two study. We are going to enroll 100 patients, various tumors, have the BRF V600 mutation. And our goal, if we see a signal, we are planning on applying for, uh, we're planning to get an approval. Is the FDA engaged in that dialogue at this point or not yet?
1: You know, in in some cases, yes, I think now right now, you know, we are more and more. We know these targets now in Marchad across multiple cancers. I think the companies, when they design, especially these phase two basket studies, they do sit and discuss with the FDA, uh, you know, and ask even seek guidance and counsel on what would should be the response rate cut off, if you know, f- for, for a potential uh, indication. In, in many cases, what happens is the trials are designed, the trials are done. Midway in the trial, we see interesting signals of activity. In that case, uh, you know we, we go to FDA with a meeting called a type C meeting, an ad hoc meeting, showing the data to explore possibility to see if uh, there is a pathway for a drug, you know, accelerated approval for this drug. I think both ways, it can be done both the ways, but I think more and more they are encouraging that they want to have the discussion with fda before designing the clinical trial when you are designing the clinical trial rather than later
0: so but as part of the x ray approval pathway and correct me if i'm wrong as part of that approval you must conduct post marketing study exactly and that is technically should be a randomized control study because you're saying okay i believe this drug works and you need to show that in a randomized controlled fashion. Um, and the idea is that if it doesn't work in the post marketing setting, then probably what you saw was more noise and not signal.
1: Again, yes and no, because there are some exceptions, right? You know, for instance, in the case of extremely, extremely rare diseases, it may be infeasible to conduct randomized studies, and it may not be, uh, you know, we may not have even clinical equipoise to randomize patients to. Standard of care. Um, right, you know, there have been several instances of FDA approval. Again, those are exceptions, rare diseases, but most of the most of the programs with accelerated approval have a post-marketing uh you know commitment of a confirmatory study, which which can be a randomized study, or which should be a randomized study.
0: Okay, but, but it's not always a randomized study. It's not
1: always a randomized study.
0: So so what type, I guess take us through the type of studies that could be conducted in the post-marketing setting for x approval and they remain acceptable by the FDA? Because I believe that is where you start talking about synth- synthetic control arms.
1: Exactly. So exactly.
0: yeah, take us through the type of studies where I got my drug through the X-rayed approval pathway. Uh, I got the uh, folks are, are able to prescribe it. But now I must do this post-marketing trial. What type of post-marketing studies are acceptable to the FDA?
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, this is, uh, we are all in the learning experience phase on this, right? I think it's, I wouldn't say what are acceptable to the FDA. But again, these are some of the ways that, you know, supportive evidence for the drug can be, you know, handled, uh, uh, you know, after accelerated approval. So although a randomized control trials allow for comparison of treatment arms with minimal concern for confounding bias for known and unknown factors, randomized study, as I said, is not feasible in certain disease settings, right? When randomized design, uh, randomized design studies are not possible, you know, what we call is ECA, external controlled arms, or also popularly known as synthetic control arms, uh, incorporating into the study design can be an effective way to expand the interpretability of the results of an experimental single arm trial by introducing the ability to carry out a formal or informal comparative analysis again you know as and when you know we are learning right like these are emerging healthcare technologies uh, and, you know, they've been slow in the last decade to gain traction because there is still confusion and uh, skepticism about external control arms. Why do we have the skepticism about external control arms? Because it stems from lack of precedence, right? And there is also uh, not a step-by-step guidance and data to quantify the impact on drug development and clinical outcomes. So this uncertainty has, you know, given us Uh, several myths around the synthetic control arms because it's always a fear of the unknown. And, you know, as I said, external control arm, we call it as ECA or SCA, synthetic control arm, are based on what we call as RWD. Again, this taxonomy is again and again repeated in the real world, uh, uh, you know, uh, research. That's RWD, what is that? It's real world data. What is real-world data? Real-world data is a data that is pulled from the electronic medical records uh, and medical claims, medical bills, and you know in non-oncology fields, you know they are using even wearable technology and wearable devices to you know access real-world data. And there are several other sources of real-world data. And what these uh, synthetic control arms or external control arms are being used to. So they are used to now primarily, you know, again, they can't support the approval. They can provide, you know, some supplementary evidence to a single-arm study. And also, they can also uh, help in terms of label expansion of drugs, in especially in rare diseases. And even for the pharma company, for go, no-go treatment reason for studies, right? When they want to compare that with real world data, if their drug doesn't fare well, it can be used for you know a, a go-no-go decision and you know are not missing on, on the drugs.
0: So I think the label expansion is probably self-explanatory. Yes, yes. Right? You see the drug being used in the real world. Yes. You may see an activity in a tumor you didn't think about. Mm. And you then you take that data to the FDA and say, hey, look, I did not think the drug works in sarcoma, but it's being used off-label by, and I have a data on like 500 patients and it's working. And they yes. may give you they may give you a secondary indication Mm -hmm. or they may give you an expanded label that for example, the label is for let's say theoretically for people younger than the age of 75. And then Mm -hmm. you show in the real world data that they work in patients over 75 and they expand the label. But that neither of this, the expanded label or the secondary indication, these are not comparison, uh, randomized control. I guess my question is, how do you use RWD or the synthetic control arm in a randomized way in the post marketing era? Is that what is used or no? Like, do you actually take a cohort from the real world yeah. and say, and, and, and you say, I'm going to, how do you do it? How do you do, how do you integrate this as part of a post marketing randomized setting?
1: Absolutely. I think that's a great question. So this is now well documented, right? Now, you know, two years ago, if you asked me this question, this is not well documented, but now this is well documented. So external control arms are well documented in the post-approval setting. Uh, in the US healthcare system, you know, drug makers you know, seek reimbursement from payers by conducting database studies, you know, post-marketing studies, in which external control arms are often leveraged for price negotiations and coverage. In Europe, you know, after they go, you know, FDA, it's only one step, right? It's FDA approval and then, drug, you know, the, the drug is reimbursed. In Europe, uh, they have something called the EMA approval. And then there is a lengthy process in each country that they need to go through this process called HTA, health technology assessment. So the in Europe, the manufacturers, the pharma companies need to submit lengthy dossiers and memos to each country's health technology agency to seek insurance coverage and ensure patient access. So, in these situations, the external control arms provide the foundation of comparison between active treatment and a control cohort. Again, these are still in the early stages of adoption. I think you know, I, I can share with you, you know, some of the early uh, you know, uh, external control arm or synthetic control arm data that led to even uh, FDA considering some data for FDA approval in rare diseases. And also recently, you know, uh, we published. Uh, how we address challenges with real-world synthetic control arm to demonstrate the comparative effectiveness of a selective rate inhibitor in non-small cell lung cancer. So, um, as you know, uh, you know recently, uh, you know in the peak of the pandemic, we conducted a clinical trial called Arrow, which is an open-label, multi-cohort uh, phase one, phase two study that demonstrated in a highly potent selective rate inhibitor was efficacious in red fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer patients. So given the promising results uh, in 2020, uh, the drug was FDA approved for treatment of red fusion positive non-small cell lung cancer patients. So as you know, red fusion lung cancer patient is just you know, 2% of non-small cell lung cancer, one to 2%. So there is a frontline randomized study ongoing, but you know it's going to take a long time for us to build evidence from a frontline randomized study of tralcetinib and first-line standard therapy. In, in the background, one of COVID infection and also an unprecedented pandemic, we have a lot of recruitment challenges. To fill this evidence gap, You know, one of the goals of this study was to investigate the relative effectiveness of tralcetinib by comparing outcomes for red fusion positive patients received first-line prolcetinib in the ARROW study. So we have the data. That data has already been published in Lancet Oncology, right? So we use that first-line prolcetinib data with synthetic control arm derived from the real-world data, right? We drew upon real-world data to construct synthetic control arms for comparison, you know, where running a randomized trial in this case was infeasible or it randomized study is ongoing, but it might take time for us to get the results. So in order to satisfy the requirements of HTA or in order to even be us being comfortable when we offer this drug to uh, patients, right? When lung cancer patients come, we know if the patient's tumor harbors uh, alteration, what do you want to give? Standard chemotherapy uh, with, uh, you know, pem, you know, pembrolizumab in combination with standard therapy or pembrolizumab or you know, this RET inhibitor. So we wanted to build confidence uh, in in us treating this. So we did this, uh, you know, sort of a randomized uh, uh, study uh, with synthetic control arm. And, you know, we showed our goal was to investigate the comparative effectiveness of the RET inhibitors related to other therapies in the first-line non-small cell lung cancer. So one of the main challenges in you know, uh, real-world data and real, building real-world evidence is the bias, right? There's so much bias that we need to be cognizant of uh, when we design these synthetic control arm studies. So that is why we want to do a randomized study. What are the ra- biases that we see? We see confounding bias, selection bias, performing bias, detection bias, attrition bias, and time trend bias. So all these, you know, again, we can mitigate and we can address some of these concerns by some statistical analysis, uh, mitigating, you know, how we can, you know, that's what we've showed in in our nature communications paper is how we are able to address some of these biases when we randomize, uh, you know, a clinical trial single arm study with a real world, uh, you know, a synthetic control arm.
0: I'd like to maybe, address you know, a few of these issues with synthetic control arms because yeah. you, you mentioned some of the biases. I think one of the biggest biases that you will hear amongst clinicians, investigators is that in the real world, there is no uniformity into how you define response um, or even how often you do imaging studies.
1: Absolutely. I mean,
0: once you go in the real world, you may decide to scan your patient every two months. I may do it every three months. Uh, you, I may literally adhere to the resist criteria and you and I know in the real world, nobody is really measuring with a ruler resist. And they're really probably saying if the the node is shrinking and the patient is doing okay, then they're responding and I'm moving on. Mm -hmm. So how do you address these two factors, assessing the response because you're really not using a uniform way and then addressing what let's call it progression-free survival, because really the if, frankly, the PFS the PFS is contingent on uh, how often you are assessing progression with imaging. So if you're really not doing it enough, you're probably going to have artificially prolonged PFS. So how do you address these two biases?
1: Absolutely. I think uh, that's a great question. So in that study, particularly, I think if you go and uh, read that study, we directly compared the overall survival, the PFS, and also importantly, time to treatment discontinuation, right? So again, Oncologists are not going to continue a drug if the patient is not benefiting from the drug, right? Either clinically or or radiologically. So again, we also used another, uh, you know, endpoint called time to treatment discontinuation. And we directly compared uh, for a selective rate inhibitor versus monotherapy pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy plus a combination with pembrolizumab. uh, And we built in, uh, you know, something called, uh, you know, tipping point based bias analysis you know, assuming non-random, you know, missingness for, you know, ECOG performance status and impact of metastasis. And again, what we all always know is that uh, real world patients have often a poor performance status and maybe even borderline labs than patients who enroll on clinical trials, right? So again, we took uh, all these, uh, you know, measures uh, of confounding uh, into our analysis. When we did the sensitive analysis, we went back and forth with brilliant uh, you know statisticians who 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 delve into the uh, you know real world you know database and and the on a, on a, on a, you know single arm uh, cohort clinical trial again being a rare mutation 1 to 2% of lung cancer along with a limited uptake over time we you know expected that there would be uh, less patients in the real world so that's why we we matched this you know real world cohort with patients without red, you know, fusions as well. And we showed that, you know, even if we, you know, adjust for all these biases, all these mutations, and a selective red inhibitor in the frontline setting was superior, or in fact, you can say non-inferior to pembrolizumab or pembrolizumab with chemotherapy so that we have better confidence, you know, in treating these patients as clinicians and also, you know, importantly, uh, you know, healthcare, health technology agencies can say, yes, they have some data, supportive data, uh, to show uh, that in the real world setting, these patients are are, are benefiting uh, from this treatment.
0: So um, maybe a couple other questions, and I can't believe we're almost at the top of the hour. This is crazy. I can't get enough of talking to you, but, um, Once you have this accelerated uh, uh, approval and you are now in the process of designing the post marketing study, Mm -hmm. whether it is a randomized prospective RCT, whether it is comparison to a synthetic control arm from real world data, is there a dialogue with the FDA by you go to the FDA and say, this is what we are thinking if we are proven correct with this design then we expect to follow regulatory approval
1: absolutely absolutely I think this is this is in fact when when the drugs receive approval it is a in, you know mandate by the FDA uh, to drug companies uh, that they have to follow you know certain you know clinical trials the clinical trial design is discussed you know many times the clinical trial for the you know, randomized studies or post-marketing studies are designed even before the Drug is you know, receives approval. And that's when confusion ensues. Again, time and again, we've seen that it is always good to talk to the FDA and regulatory authorities to make sure that this trial, if successful, would be the confirmatory study.
0: What happens if the confirmatory study post-marketing does not pan out. What happens then?
1: That's a great question. So I think, you know, in many cases, I you know, there are two things, right? One for common diseases, one for rare diseases. So in common diseases, you know, it is the company has to withdraw the uh, marketing approval and the company has to withdraw approval uh, in, in, you know, and they have to, you know, perform due diligence and make sure that they have to withdraw marketing approval. Many times what happens is you know the trial that that is done may not be the trial confirmatory trial that you know would be the perfect trial. So then in that case, even if the trial is negative, it, it means that the drug is that it's not a failed drug, it's a failed trial. So in that case, they can go back to FDA and ask them for some more time to design the proper randomized study uh, so that, this uh, you know issue can be answered in some cases, especially in rare diseases. You know sometimes the FDA may mandate confirmatory studies, but it may not be possible or feasible for these studies to be done. In that case, uh, the company needs to have an open dialogue with the FDA and also seek um, you know other uh, you know mechanisms of you know post marketing continued approval like. Uh, use of external control arms or, you know, external control studies. There have been several, several instances recently, uh, regulatory case studies that even the FDA put out that they've used the synthetic control arms for, you know, taking the regulatory decision. You know, there have been decisions like a drug like selumetinib, which is a MEK inhibitor. There is a rare form of, uh, you know, pediatric cancer called NF neurofibromatosis type 1 with inoperable plexiform neurofibroma. So they used previously conducted clinical trials as sources of external control data, mainly to establish a natural history of disease. And apparently they just wanted to make sure that there is no uh, you know, spontaneous regression in these benign tumors. And they used that. And recently there was another drug approved for uh, bladder cancer, edafitinib, for FGFR gene selected alterations. and. FDA used patient-level EHR data from U.S. community-based clinics to establish the natural history of disease. And we see all these external control arms also being used in also looking into contribution of components. You know, for instance, uh, as you know, pembrolizumab, uh, ketruda, plus lenvima, lenvatinib, was approved in endometrial cancer, which is not MSI high. And, you know, people wanted to know the contribution of pembrolizumab and lenvatinib. So in that case, they used other uh, trials with monotherapy pembrolizumab and monotherapy lenvatinib for contribution of the components and what the regulators call it as isolation of treatment effect, that the combination is beneficial that the individual components alone. So there are several use case scenarios uh, in terms of regulatory pathway for these synthetic control arms. And again, this is not exhaustive, right? So we are learning more. As, as with any novel technology, right, the real world data is completely imperfect today, but it is a definite hurdle that can be overcome. So, as you said, physicians in the real world are not following clinical protocol. There'll be always less consistency in the real world related to clinical trial data. So, to overcome potential bias, you know, we have brilliant biostatisticians, and so many of us have developed uh, robust methodology and statistical approaches. Again, we are also uh, using inclusion-exclusion criteria like we use in clinical trials in the real-world data to avoid cherry-picking and augmenting real-world data, to closely mimicking the information that we see on clinical trials. So again, we are just still scratching the surface for synthetic control arms. It's still in very, very early stages of adoption. You know, there are so many stakeholders, uh, you know, are not certain about their long-term potential for clinical research, but with definite buy-in, especially from regulators, especially from the payers, with creativity from academia, creativity from statisticians, creativity from industry, I think clinical trial sponsors, will quickly start to see the benefits of these real-world synthetic control arms in clinical trials.
0: When you get the accelerated approval, you still don't have the full approval, right? You have the accelerated yep. approval. Yep. But as a prescribing physician, there are no limitations, right? And you can do whatever you want. I mean, technically, it's just a regulatory issue. It's like a regulatory stamp. But when, when there is an accelerated approval, as a doctor, I can prescribe that drug Absolutely. One, whenever I want. Mm-hmm. So how long does it take from accelerated approval until full approval? And then I'll tell you why I asked that question.
1: It depends, right? Sometimes there are drugs just with accelerated approval and that haven't had a full approval even after like a decade. And there are some drugs that have been withdrawn from accelerated approval because the confirmatory trials did not pan out after like even five years. I don't have the specific numbers, but usually from, from accelerated approval, majority of the drugs, at least in precision oncology, not majority, almost all the drugs have been confirmed with full approval in the precision oncology setting. And I keep track of all the precision oncology drugs. Immunotherapy, as you know, you see in the paper, is in the New England Journal paper, it's a wild, wild west in terms of immunotherapy. But precision oncology accelerated approvals, right? Have been, you know, I think precision accelerated approval has been built for precision oncology. Just like precision oncology is, you know, directing to the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. Accelerated approval has been the right pathway for precision oncology at the right time.
0: I mean, I think, I think that, that is another podcast. I, I do think um, that um, one of the issues to accelerate approval that people contend is that not every drug that does not fulfill its promise in the post-marketing era gets withdrawn. And you said that yourself. And then Absolutely. the question would be, well, if you went accelerated approval and you did not show this later on and you did not withdraw, then are we like, you know, are we scamming the system almost?
1: No, that, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I think, you know, that's unique in oncology, right? Because, you know, sometimes we are stuck with a drug based on single arm data that shows a response rate. And some overall survival data. And the confirmatory trial is not the confirmatory trial one would think of. It's a random, you know, random study that was, you know, touted to be the confirmatory study in combination with some other agent. And that confirmatory style in combination was negative. That, mean, that means the trial is negative. The drug doesn't fail. So I think, you know, if in the case of a disease that doesn't have an FDA approval, withdrawing that drug from approval. Will in fact, you know, patients will lose access to the drug, right? In the real world, I think, why does FDA need to approve a drug, right?
0: But, but, that, but that's does. but that's okay though, Vivek. I mean, if you yeah. think about it, if yeah. you losing access to a drug that we may not know if it helps people is okay. In rare
1: diseases, again, you know again, there are always exceptions to the rule. Again, you know, we were, you know, talking about this morning about a drug called clofarabine, which is used in pediatrics in a relapse refractory setting, and apparently it's been. I wrote
0: I wrote a paper on clofarabine in 2005. You were probably in high school. I I had, a, <laughs> I had, I had an investigator initiated study on clofarabine in uh, refractory and relapse uh, lymphoma. It's in cancer. Is
1: that right? That's awesome. <laughs> I, I will go ahead and read it. Yeah, no, absolutely. So that drug, apparently it's approved in pediatrics. We are an accelerated approval mechanism. And never they, you know, never was a confirmatory trial was done. I don't know the reasons. I need to look up at the reasons. And, you know, if that accelerated approval is pulled, again, people use clofarabine in the relapsed refractory setting if there are no drugs, right? If, you know, someone's going to pull that approval, pediatric patients with this rare, you know, leukemia in the relapsed refractory setting may not have access to the drug. And of course, having a drug approved means a physician has access to the drug. So no physician is going to give clofarabine in the frontline leukemia, especially in pediatrics. So again, in such unique cases, I think, you know, accelerated approval provides a pathway for drug access for patients. So
0: it's about nuances. I think that's really important. Exactly, um... exactly. Look, it's been an hour, we've been chatting. This is a lot of fun. I think we talked a lot about the regulatory approval, accelerated pathways, synthetic control arms, a wide range of things. Anything else we should address on today's podcast? You know, it's not gonna be the last time you come on the podcast, but <laughs> at, at least at least on, on that particular topic, anything else maybe we should have talked about and I completely missed?
1: I think we, we hit most of the points here. I think we spoke about precision oncology, tissue agnostic approvals, and also, you know, real-world synthetic control arms. Again, this is a nascent field, right? I think this real-world data is a synthetic, you know, again, five years ago, I did not know what this was, and uh, we all learned about this. This is uh, implementing uh, external control arms. requires money, time, and resources. Um, You know, again, evidence generation here is ripe for innovation in the digital era and with the expanded use of real-world evidence uh, for a clearer example. So again, uh, you know, we are still scratching the surface. So people say it's too imperfect to be used as a comparator arm to a clinical trial, which I agree, but that hurdle can be overcome. I think, uh, you know, with, with brilliant statisticians and brilliant uh, designs, I think we can all overcome this. Well, I'm, do-
0: I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer in real-world okay. evidence. To be honest, I think you're, you're I, I believe, uh, I actually was criticized before a lot about real world evidence. And yeah. sometimes on social media, when I talk about it, people will uh, tweet back at me and say, well, are you saying we live in the unreal world? I remember exactly this happened to me several years back. And I, I wrote a paper addressing that, but yeah, uh, you're right. I think it's going to be, it's, it's here to stay. It's important. It's, um, and I think we need to figure out how do we really try to answer questions as eloquently and as cleanly as possible Because there's a lot of noise and mess, and we have to make sure that we actually overcome that. Of course, absolutely.
1: This must be rigorously vetted by pre-specified detailed protocol, as we do for prospective clinical trials, right? Uh, It's an evolving area of methodological advancement and regulatory interest and statistical interest and clinical interest. So, you know, again, this, you know, many patients may, may not need to be treated with a non-therapeutic intent, non-therapeutic arms you know especially with incorporation of real world data. So that is what ultimately the goal of us uh, in oncology is to make sure that we have access, you know provide the right patients the right drugs right so um, again these uh, mechanisms are all I, I exist to you know provide drugs uh, to
0: patients. Well Dr. Vivek Subhaya, the the myth, the legend, Thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much. I think, uh, you know, we have a lot to talk to, but, you know, this is fantastic. Even I, I, I'm able to start thinking a lot just, just doing this podcast. Thank you so
0: much. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This was such a great episode. I enjoyed hosting Dr. Subaya on today's podcast. Uh, it was wonderful to have him on and a pleasure to visit with him and talk about policy, regulatory, precision oncology, and synthetic real world uh, arms. Uh, please support the podcast by visiting the website, chatinavan.com, by subscribing to the podcast, by watching it on YouTube channel, referring to your friends, colleagues. Let people know about this podcast. And if you like this episode, please write a brief review and uh, rate. Give us five stars only if you think on Healthcare Unfiltered, we deserve the five stars. And always send me any ideas, suggestions, follow me on Twitter, and I hope to see you wearing the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Socrates, the only true wisdom is in knowing you know nothing. Until next time, take care.